This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large of Recode. You may know me as someone who would be happy to host Mark Zuckerberg and Tucker Carlson for dinner. I have a thing or two I'd like to say to both of them, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Brittany Kaiser, the former development director of Cambridge Analytica. She later testified about the company's misuse of Facebook data in the British Parliament and was one of the stars of the Netflix documentary, The Great Hack. She's about to release a new book called Targeted, the Cambridge Analytical Whistleblower's inside story of how big data, Trump, and Facebook broke democracy and how it can happen again. That's a big title. Brittany, welcome to Recode Decode. (laughs) Thank you so much. a lot of words in there, Brittany. A lot of bad words together, all mashed up together. There's a lot of important things to say at this point in time. So I had to try to fit it all in. It's perfect timing. Of course, right in the middle of the Ukraine mess and and everything else that's been going on. But there's always something going on, actually. Um, But (laughs) the the repercussions of what happened at Facebook and Cambridge Analytica just last and continue to have repercussions, you know, reverberations and repercussions throughout. So let's talk a little bit about your background so people get a sense. I did a panel for the documentary, The Great Hack, which does explain you quite a, quite a bit. I recommend people watching it. It's a really interesting and unusual portrayal of you. Um, I want to talk about that in a minute. Mm-hmm. But give people the background of how you came to become development director because you have an unusual path. You started off in politics working for Obama, correct? Is that correct? Or before that? Even before- yeah, so I— I was actually studying to be a human rights lawyer when I left my degree in order to go work for Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. So the during the where prime, are you from? You're from I'm from Chicago. Chicago right, so right. I've known about uh, Barack Obama since I was quite young, mm-hmm. and I had volunteered for the DNC many years before that on first Howard Dean's campaign and then John Kerry's, and continued to follow what was going on. And in 2004, I attended the DNC. And that's where I first met Barack Obama, and Uh he actually invited me to volunteer on his senatorial campaign, which I did, and uh, continued to keep eyes on him until he announced that he was going to run for president. And I left my degree when I got an internship to go back to Chicago to work for him. All right. So you, what was the political bug that got you? What, what you just, you were working on generalized things, or was was data and and social media your biggest focus? Actually, it was environmental policy that Mm -hmm. I was most interested in from a very young age. Mm -hmm. Uh, Barack was giving a speech about how him and Senator Dick Durbin were trying to stop British petroleum from dumping into the streams and waterways that fed Mm -hmm. into Lake Michigan. And that's what the the rally was about on Boston Harbor when I first met him. So Mm -hmm. that's what originally motivated me to be interested in his candidacy. And from there forward, I started to get much more involved in human rights activism. Maybe it comes from a Jewish background where we learn about genocide and crimes against humanity so intensely growing up. Mm -hmm. But that became a very big interest of mine of how to use foreign policy in order to protect people and prevent war. All right. So you go to the Obama campaign. Talk about what you did there. So I joined— in spring of 2007, so quite early, when the new media team was about five people. Mm -hmm. And that's when we were first starting to create social media accounts for Barack Obama to start testing the waters on how we could use these new platforms to start communicating with voters. So on my first day, I was actually asked to create a Facebook page for Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. And we started doing very rudimentary things to collect data, which was to 
post different messages and also see how people were reacting. What issues were they writing in to ask about? Was it healthcare? Was it the environment, foreign policy? And we could start to keep basic Excel sheets to find out what actually motivated people to Mm -hmm. care about Barack's candidacy or about politics in general. Mm -hmm. And that way we started to develop targeted messaging. So we know if this person ever writes into us again, they care about healthcare policy, and we're always going to make sure to keep them updated on what the campaign is up to. Or send messages that way. But it was sort of artisanal. This is artisanal data if if you're keeping an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, it was very basic in the beginning. It was only later in the campaign when we started to do more advanced work with algorithms, such as when we noticed that there were so many people that would write into us during a presidential debate, we decided to build a platform where people could text in their questions. And depending on the words used in those texts, it would categorize the text under a certain policy. And we would have different teams. Okay, here's the healthcare team and the foreign policy team. And we'd be live responding to all of their questions. And again, that was a basic algorithm that was being used, but that's when we started to use predictive analytics. Did you have... A background in data? No. You just started making Facebook pages. Yeah. I had worked in digital in high school on our high school newspaper. I was the head of photography and mm-hmm. led the transition from film photography to, to digital. digital and was quite advanced in working with Adobe products. But that was the most I had really done was digital design and put the and young editing. person on this stuff. Is that really... Well, learned yeah. pretty quickly. Yeah. All right. So you were doing this for them and then and worked for them for quite a while. And you had a great regard for President Obama uh, during this time. I mean, the, 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 if the documentary is correct, you had quite a like it was your candidate. Yes, very much so. All right. So you were doing this and explain what happened. You didn't go to the White House. You didn't go. Why not? No, I actually applied to do an abroad program in Mm -hmm. Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I was very interested in human rights in China. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to move there very badly. I had taken Mandarin for many years. And Mm -hmm. the opportunity to go work in the White House first to go work on human rights in China and to further my Chinese language skills, it was a no-brainer for me. All right, but part of the documentary was talking about you being disappointed with the Obama campaign in some way. Is that correct? No, not disappointed in the Obama campaign. Um, It was more, I had a very difficult time while doing some of that work. Mm -hmm. Most days I actually ended up crying at work because of the incitement of racial hatred that Mm -hmm. we would get on our Facebook page, on our YouTube. So you saw that early. Yeah, and it was very tumultuous. And trying to track and trace where that misinformation was coming from was very difficult at the time. Was it coming from opposing Democrats? Was it coming from the Republicans? Was it coming from advocacy groups? And trying to manage that and police it and even develop internally our own debate about whether censorship or free speech was correct on social media just made it a a very emotionally difficult job to have. Right. And so this, and this was early days before people were really manipulating. And did you see signs? This was so early. I guess you wouldn't have seen signs of Russian involvement or anything like that. Or it was just bots or, you, or you saw the power of Facebook could, I saw to, the power, to, to be manipulated. I saw the power of people being able to hide behind kind of a, a digital divide and therefore be able to speak their mind in a way that they never would in, in person. Mm-hmm. And the development of fake accounts was not so... Not such a big thing in the very beginning. I wouldn't say there were even really bots. This was not too long after you didn't any longer have to have a a college email in order to get on Facebook. So it wasn't really bots and fake accounts that were the problem. It was people for the first time feeling like you could say whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, to Mm -hmm. whomever they wanted without any repercussions. And unfortunately, there were quite a few people that took that very far. And part of my job was actually to report people to the FBI when they threatened violence on Mm -hmm. Senator Obama. Mm -hmm. And so you wanted to get out of that. You wanted to—there wasn't a a disgruntlement with the Obama administration or anything else to move. You went—you were going to Hong Kong. Yeah, this was a very early decision when he had only— kind of before he even won. Mm -hmm. Um, I was told that if he does win, people who were early on in the campaign— you know, we're going to get the the first offers of mm-hmm. jobs for the communications team in the White House and in other government departments, which mm-hmm. most of my colleagues decided to take up. But I really thought I needed to move on and do something different. So talk about life. what you did then, how so, you got to Cambridge Analytica. 
So I spent very many years working in human rights activism. I really learned all about that, which is such a contemporary conversation right now when I went to Hong Kong. I got there and I met a big group of different human rights activists that at the time were fighting against something called Article 8 that mm-hmm. the Chinese government was trying to pass, which would mean that the Chinese government would get a full veto of any decisions made in the Hong Kong parliament. So as you could imagine, yeah, there, there were protests, very big protests um, that I was very actively involved in. I also got involved with a group of people who were helping smuggle North Korean refugees into safety. So refugees that ended up in China, where they were going to be sent back to North Korea, mm-hmm. we would try to find a way to get them behind embassy walls. Sometimes even they would be dropped through helicopters behind embassy walls so that they would be safe with whatever country that happened to be, you know, Vietnam or or what have you. So China couldn't send them back. And that was really moving for me. I got involved with a Brussels-based NGO called Human Rights Without Frontiers. And they gave me accreditation to the European Parliament and the United Nations in order to undertake NGO lobbying. Mm-hmm. So I spent my year in Hong Kong and went back to the University of Edinburgh where I was doing my master's degree. And I would travel to Geneva and to Brussels all of the time in order to talk about human rights in China and human rights in North Korea and try to keep that on the top of the political debate. Mm-hmm. So Cambridge Analytica. Right. So many years and degrees and jobs at NGOs like Amnesty International and United Nations, I'm writing my PhD on preventive diplomacy, which means using the power of ambassadors and heads of state in order to prevent war, violent crime, crimes against humanity before they happen. And I get to chapter three, and it ends up being all about how you can use big data sets in order to predict war before Mm -hmm. it happens so you can get real-time valuable information to decision makers Mm -hmm. so that they can intervene more quickly. And nobody at my law school could teach me about predictive analytics. Mm -hmm. So at the time, I was still trying to pitch for side work to do social media for anybody that was working in elections or even charity campaigns. And I was introduced at a meeting where I was hoping to pitch for social media work to Alexander Nix. Mm -hmm. The CEO. Exactly. And because it was a meeting with people who were going to have elections upcoming in their country, Mm -hmm. I got to hear his entire pitch Mm -hmm. about everything that he did at his company. At the time, he told us that his biggest project was on the defense side, where he had a team of people that were using predictive analytics in order to find people who are vulnerable to being recruited into ISIS online Mm -hmm. and to reach out to those usually young people, 18 to 35, and convince them to stay at home with their families instead of sneaking themselves into Syria. I thought, wow, I mean, these are some incredible data scientists. I'd Mm -hmm. love to meet them. I'd love to learn what they do. This sounds perfect for my Ph.D., and I started exploring a relationship with the SEL group. Mm-hmm. And so w- did you have any sense that there was any problems or you just wanted to be in on it? Because you shifted really dramatically in your mentality, I guess. I, that was what was so curious about the the thing. I was like, who are you? Like, why did you do that if you had this background in democratic politics and then in um, uh, human rights to go to this, which was sort of a, like a— a digital arms dealer. I don't know how else to put it. You know, did you think of it that way? No, that's not how it was pitched to me. Okay, all right. <laughs> definitely well, not. pitched to you, and what you can see they're doing is are often different things. But yeah, you're, you very seem much smart so. enough. So. Uh, on the outside, it seemed like a group of people who are trying to make the world a better place using technology. Mm-hmm. The first time I went in for a meeting at the SCL group's office, I got introduced to somebody who had been specifically working in preventive diplomacy for 10 years Mm -hmm. uh, for the Commonwealth Secretariat, someone that had been the director of operations for the International Rescue Committee, Mm -hmm. somebody else that was a human rights lawyer that had worked with the European Commission, and they were all working on sometimes defense projects but also social projects, so how you could use research and data analysis in order Mm -hmm. to figure out, for instance, how to 
get people to use new healthcare facilities instead of sure, that, traditional I, medicine doctors and what have pitch. you. I remember their pitch. Right. I was at dinner next to Nick's, and I was, thought it was a lot of bullshit, actually, interestingly enough. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that it, there was but a lot of that predictive analysis was happening at the time. Google, remember, they were going to predict what movies that were going to work or right. what TV shows. There was all kinds of stuff like that, but a lot of it was sort of not— Adequate, I would say. It didn't come through in the same way. It, it, had you studied that, or, or I had you, never studied yeah. predictive but analytics you would hope before. That you that this. I'm not saying that all of it was, but it's sort of a big sell that we can make change people's minds. I mean, which propaganda has been doing for centuries, right? Well, I suppose it's actually a very commonly held belief mm-hmm. and concept in humanitarian operations. Uh, mm-hmm. It's called behavior change campaigns, sure, and they're used very prolifically. And there's usually. RFPs and project manager positions always advertised through United Nations websites all about being part of behavior change campaigning. But it's all supposed to be shifting things towards the good, quote unquote, what what they consider to be good. And I always saw it as inherently good Mm -hmm. and something not to be questioned. So when I'm presented with a company that is doing this scientifically in a way where you can measure your impact and measure the change in people's actions and perceptions, I thought, hey, you and know, the, this the is only great. reason I'm asking is because you had been part of the Obama campaign, where this was, you saw the ugly side of it. It never occurred to you there could be ugly sides to doing this kind of stuff. Well, I suppose I saw the ugly side of individuals that were able to hide behind social media uh-huh. in order to let out the worst in themselves. Mm-hmm. I didn't think about companies that could possibly be doing that with paid mm-hmm. messaging because at the time there wasn't any no, paid wasn't. messaging. So yeah. I had never really experienced anything like that. So talk about your development there. So you go decide to work with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so eventually I decided so to work with them. you leave behind all this other stuff. Yeah, well, at the time this I was, was writing my— world-changing Yeah, I was writing my PhD, so mm-hmm. my goal was to really finish my doctorate and then continue on with my human rights work. Sure. And this was an opportunity to earn a bit of money while I was researching and actually be able to write the crux of my PhD, which is that it's possible to give real-time, accurate information to decision makers so that they can prevent war, mm-hmm. right? But without getting really deep into uh, big data and analytics, I wouldn't be able to prove my thesis. Mm-hmm. So I got involved with the campaign originally just to do social projects and international elections because I'm very interested in politics. Yeah. And that seemed great for the first few months that I was there, only to find out that the way that that particular company operated in different countries and the people that they interacted with were not always as above board as I would have expected. Mm -hmm. I was definitely in over my head. and How old were you at this time? 26. Okay. All right. In over your head how? In over my head in terms of negotiating millions of dollars worth of contracts with business people and governments at that age uh, with a technology that I didn't, didn't f- understand. fully understand yet. Right. Did you make you worry about this company that it was doing this? Cause not was, initially. Not initially. Not initially. I just thought, well, if I'm going to be working in predictive analytics alongside my PhD, you know, running around... Asia and Africa, someone so young, uh, Mm -hmm. maybe I need to learn a bit more. Maybe I should go home Mm -hmm. and do it from home. So eventually there ended up being an opportunity to go back to America and still work for the company. Mm -hmm. And so I started to explore that. And so explain to people what you did, what you with these deals that you did. Because you were in these meetings, you were, you you seemed to travel with Nick's a lot and, mm-hmm. and develop business. And that was, he seemed to be on sort of a demented course to sign up deals. I, I, I mean, I, again, I recall meeting him so many times. Mm-hmm. He was always on some deal or the next. Yes. Um, and selling, selling, selling. He was a big salesperson. Definitely. Sales before operations, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, I was. I thought that at the time. You know, I was like, "Oh, you're going to solve." Can-. I think I made a joke. I think, "Oh, you're solving cancer. Good for you. Good right. luck with that with that endeavor." But we talk about that. What you were doing? What you were? What was your pitch to clients? And what was the actual things that actually worked? Mm-hmm. So usually, what we'd be meeting people that either had an election or a campaign to do. In the beginning, I pitched quite a lot of nonprofits and charities that were trying to find new donors. Mm -hmm. So we would show them exactly what we did in strategic communication, so how we did qualitative and quantitative research and would be able to also take their proprietary data that they already had about their supporters, if it's political or their donors, if it's 
for charities. And we would be able to make a suite of models specifically for them Mm -hmm. in order to identify the people that care most about their issues, that are most likely to vote or take action, most likely to donate, right? And explain to them the whole micro-targeting process for communications and how we would measure results, right? right? And so we would figure out what that organization or individual was actually trying to achieve, how much data they had or didn't have, what internal capacity they had to carry out a campaign. And then we would put together a proposal for exactly what we were going to do with them. Sometimes they had half the things that we were proposing already in-house. So we would just figure out how we were going to work with their team in order to slot in and provide extra value or measurement as part of the campaign. All right, and this is especially around digital digital and all data that they would crunch and it would come out in a perfect answer, correct, <laughs> essentially. Well, at least a more informed a, answer. A more informed answer. And and also you could use it to manipulate in terms of manipulate. Had that Was that one of your pitches to we we're going to help you win this election with targeted data that might not have been on the up and up? Well, again, it's... In politics, you're going to have campaigns that are positive, and Mm -hmm. unfortunately, since the Obama campaign, I've realized most people engage in negative campaigning. Right. So you're going to promote your candidate, and you're going to not promote the others, Right. however that happens to be. And as normal as that might seem in politics today, it can get really dark. Yeah, very quickly. I mean, engagement is enragement, right? I mean, if you think about it, like that's how you do it. When did you, did you feel that this was a problem when you were doing this or was it just sort of a melange of different clients that were, some of which were more dubious than others? Well, I only took part in the beginning of helping Mm -hmm. design it and meet the client and get them excited about it. And then Alexander would send a team to whatever country and have me move on and keep on doing pitches. So selling, selling, selling. So you're saying sales over operations. What did you mean by that? He prioritized sales throughout my time there. It was very obvious that if he could sell something, then he would figure out a way for the company to do it. Do you think you were delivering actual products or more promises of products? I definitely think there was strong delivery in most of the campaigns that that I sold, especially the commercial campaigns. We did really well and would usually get a new contract, Mm -hmm. you know, selling summer dresses or shoes or whatever it is. But the political stuff so is— So it wasn't all summer dresses and shoes, The poli- when it moves to the political when stuff. When it moves to the political stuff, that's where you could see really serious engagement, really serious results. But with most campaigns, we wouldn't get shown how that was done. Okay. So w- did you have a worry about any of this? In the next section, I want to talk about that. What, when did the worm turn for you? Did you, have a, did you think about it? I, I mean, I, the only reason I'm asking, I think the yeah. CFO, the same thing. I had no idea. Like, uh, like everyone had no idea at this place, or, or was it just? No, I suppose it's not that, um, not that people had no idea. It's just that most people had no idea how bad it actually was, mm-hmm. um, unless you saw end to end what was going on. Just seeing one advertisement here and there, or hearing that a campaign is going really well or not going really well, and the client's upset piecing all of those things together into here's actually all of the campaigns that were put out. Look at what all of these advertisements actually say. Look at what they were intended to do mm-hmm. and look at what good or or harm that caused. So you all each individually didn't see the whole chain of offerings, mm-hmm. essentially. No. So you we were very siloed. You, siloed. So you but you were quite close with Nick's himself. Mm-hmm. Did you worry about his the promises he was making just in certain cases were you in any meetings that they that you were like we can't do that well he would usually promise that we could do things a bit faster right and maybe a sure. bit better than we actually could so because I had spent a very long time in law school before I got there I had a habit of calling our lawyers to ask if we could do certain things or not do certain things before I would propose them And every now and then I would get yelled at very badly when one of the lawyer's invoices would cross Alexander's desk. Mm -hmm. And he would say, why were you calling them? I mean, funnily enough, it's actually Giuliani's law firm. (laughs) Um, So it it seems a lot more— Whatever it is. Yeah, it seems a lot different looking back on it than it was at the time. But I was seeking their advice to make sure that whatever— I was promising a client I could do, I could legally do in that country. Right. And I would get told that we had enough expertise in-house. If the data scientists told me we could do it, then 
I could, and I should stop creating invoices. All right. So let's, we're gonna, when we get back, we're going to talk about what happened with Cambridge Analytica itself. Some people think it's a tempest in a teapot. Other people think it's absolutely the example of, of the kind of abuse that started online and continues to do that. We're here with Brittany Kaiser, whose new book is called Targeted, the Cambridge Analytica Whistleblower's Inside Story of How Big Data Trump and Facebook Broke Democracy and How It Can Happen Again. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're here with Brittany Kaiser. Her new book is called Targeted. It's about the Cambridge Analytica uh, scandal. Talk a little bit about that. You're calling yourself a whistleblower. Now, whistleblowers are in the news these days, and you're an identified whistleblower. Mm-hmm. Why do you think you're a whistleblower? What do you what, what do you imagine that you have done? So being a whistleblower means that you're able to provide information that is for the public good, right. that is original mm-hmm. and useful. I've spent the past almost two years of my life doing that. <laughs> Talking to parliament and other government organizations. I've worked with over 12 different investigations mm-hmm. around the world, let alone the amount of journalists and academic researchers that have relied on me for both on and off the record information. Okay, talk about the Cambridge Analytica thing, because that was at the center of it to begin with. Yeah, so I originally started working with The Guardian last March mm-hmm. in 2018, specifically to provide documents around Facebook and Brexit that I knew that I had. This was before I realized that I actually had access to my entire work computer. Mm -hmm. I thought I just had some specific emails that were still saved on my phone. Mm -hmm. So I talked to Paul Hilder, the um, activist that I was friends with at the time, and said, okay, I'm seeing some things in the news that I actually have more evidence about. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, what what do you think I should do? Because some of the news that I'm seeing is, is not actually accurate. It's not what happened and I think I have a lot of information that would be useful. Mm-hmm. And so he was more than kind and said, you know, I don't think you should let other people tell this story. You know, what do you, what are you going to do about it? Do you mm-hmm. want to tell your own story? And he connected me with uh, Paul Lewis, who mm-hmm. at the time was bureau chief of The Guardian in San Francisco and had been writing a lot uh, recently you know, there had been the expose with Sandy Perakilis mm-hmm. out of Facebook, and he talked about the wider problems in the data industry in the same way that I saw them. So tell us how you see them. What did you see has having happened? What I saw was that Cambridge Analytica was one very bad example of how easy it is for data to be abused, mm-hmm. that over the past decade or more, our data has been collected in a way that we have not been (laughs) fully transparent about. And that data has been collected and sold all over the world to be used for whatever people want to use it for without the knowledge of the individuals that produce that. Which is what you were selling at at Cambridge Analytica itself. So explain what they did that got them in trouble with Facebook for for people who don't know. Right. So for people that don't understand what happened there, there was a program at Facebook for about five years where you could be a developer on their platform and you would get access to their data feed, an API that is now known as the Friends API. And when you developed an app on that, it meant that when somebody consented to use that app, they were consenting for their data to be shared with Mm -hmm. the developer. But unfortunately with this API... third-party developers. Exactly. A third-party developer that had paid Facebook for the opportunity to develop you would get access to the individuals that then use that app, but also all of their friends. Mm -hmm. And there's no legal construct in the world that allows one adult to consent on behalf of Mm -hmm. another able-bodied adult. Well, it's called Facebook or Instagram, (laughs) but go ahead. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so this API allowed at least 40,000 developers to have access to 
if they had the reach mm -hmm. to all of the personal data of everybody on Facebook. And Cambridge Analytica was working with a developer that made one of these apps, and this app had just enough money put behind it that they were able to have over 30,000 people engage mm -hmm. <laughs> with that application and therefore had the data of probably most people on Facebook that were relevant to Cambridge at the time. Right, and they were using it to target people in elections, correct? Yes. Did you object to them doing this? Why do you think it's a bad example from your perspective? Oh, I mean, uh, a but very bad example in of, terms of— abuse. Of yeah. In terms of the range of how— I think it's very how, typical of what happens with your data. I think we just don't uncover it. But explain why you think this course. is a bad example. I think it's a bad example because most advertisers around the world that probably have used the same data set and might even still be using this data set, mm -hmm. they are probably not using divisive rhetoric mm -hmm. in order to run their campaigns. Sure. So if they're selling cars, they're selling cars. They're mm -hmm. probably not going to— uh, create incitement of racial hatred or violence while mm -hmm. undertaking their communications campaign. So although data might be abused in some ways, it doesn't actually open up to a litany of other offenses, mm -hmm. which I think Cambridge Analytica was probably involved in. Right. Right. To use it. And so when this, when you started to decide to do something like that, that do you think it's been overblown? I'm just, I Facebook pushed that out a lot, that it's been overblown and that this was a, this was a rogue operation by something that they shut down. I was at the, <laughs> the meeting where he opened it up to third parties, and I remember thinking this is going to be a problem. Right. Because like, I knew some of the third parties. I was like, they don't seem very, they seem somewhat sketchy. Some of them are going to go out of business. What happens to the data? Right. Like it's, it's so of, it would be very convenient for Mark to say that, uh -huh. of course, well, <laughs> that there is one rogue actor. Unfortunately, it was Facebook's negligent policies that allowed anybody to take advantage of this data. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that was not the only weakness of Facebook. And <laughs> most of the weaknesses that were shown through mm -hmm. this scandal mm -hmm. and through the continued proliferation of this conversation in the news, mm -hmm. I think are putting pressure on companies, not just Facebook, but anybody else who has been lax about their data protection policies to realize that this isn't going to go away. People mm -hmm. are not going to stop caring that they've been exploited and manipulated and that until these problems are fixed, we're not going to give up on it. So we're going to talk about that in the next session, but w when you say these problems are fixed, do you think that Cambridge Analytica actually did anything wrong or just took advantage of the system as it was? I think Cambridge took advantage of the system as it was, just mm -hmm. like any of the other developers on Facebook, but then used that data in order to take advantage of Facebook tools that unfortunately sowed massive discord within the United States and in other countries. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just Cambridge. There were other organizations involved. But mm -hmm. you know, I was I was there a month after the election when we got shown two days of what they did mm -hmm. in the campaign and in the super PAC. And a lot of the content that I saw was absolutely horrific. Mm -hmm. So what did you think at the time? What did you think you were doing? Well, uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't on the Trump campaign no, or on I the Super PAC, I, I, and we weren't allowed to know what they were doing on a day-to-day -day basis. But they were it's bragging the, about it afterwards. Well, um, a month afterwards, we did an official debrief. Right. It was two whole days of them actually showing us, here's the full methodology of what we did, the research we did, how we collected data, how we built the database, how we deployed it. This is all of the all of the briefings that we mm -hmm. would give on a daily and weekly basis. Here's how it was used to plan uh, everything from where Trump was going to do speeches and rallies to how we were going to communicate with people on social media to door knocking and the whole shebang, right? Which Brad Parcial was involved with. Of course, yeah. He was overseeing it in his San Antonio office, right. um, but his office was filled with Cambridge Analytica employees. Mm -hmm. And so they presented to us everything that was done in the campaign. And then in D.C., David Bossy, our, our mm -hmm. friend from Citizens United, was running uh, the Defeat Crooked Hillary Super PAC, which, thank God, the Federal Elections Commission did not allow that to be the actual name. Mm -hmm. But they tried to register it. It was called the Make America Number One mm -hmm. Super PAC. And they ran the Defeat Crooked Hillary campaign, which was 100% negative. It was all negative campaigning, nothing else. And some of the content from the campaign and the super PAC. I, so what did you I think? I didn't expect it to be that bad. Right. And so what did you, 
was that willful ignorance on your part and the part of other employees there, or? Well, we weren't allowed to see what they were right. doing on a day-to-day basis. It's the firewall laws, so right. unless we saw a piece of paper coming out of the printer, we weren't on any emails, in any meetings. Mm-hmm. So what did you feel after this happened? <laughs> Shock and shame that I could have been there throughout that entire process and not known. Mm-hmm. And kind of, I don't know, I suppose very confused that this was all done targeting people using data and they had no idea why they were seeing this misinformation on their newsfeed. Mm-hmm. This misinformation came onto their newsfeed because they were shown to be persuadable. They were shown to probably be neurotic and easily motivated by emotional mm-hmm. fear-based messaging. And that's above and beyond a normal political campaign and what they would do. Is it now? I, that's that's what I am here to talk about because mm-hmm. maybe it's not. Maybe yeah. a lot more people are taking advantage of these tools because it's so easy to take advantage of these tools. I'm of the belief they're architected that way. You're, it's a gun. <laughs> it's a gun. It's a gun. It's a gun. It's a gun. Yeah. And everyone's surprised that it shoots a bullet, you know? Yeah. They pretend it's not a gun, but it's a gun. Nobody or, should be surprised anymore. Yeah. No, should. So, <laughs> so what did you do at this time when you found out about this? Hmm. So... We spent quite— Here's Nick's excited yeah. about what they've done. I remember that that victory lap that they took. Yeah, we spent about, I don't know, we only had a couple of days after that to mm-hmm. kind of digest the information and to start dealing with what was going to happen going forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were supposed to completely stop all political work mm-hmm. altogether— and translate our Trump victory into a commercial enterprise. Mm-hmm. So somehow we were supposed to explain Trump in a way that would allow people to, you know, sell toothpaste in cars. Right. Saying, we did it. We did this. We did it. this. Right. And when they had shown us that debrief, there was a huge confrontation between me and some other people in the New York office that were supposed to be doing commercial work and the people who had just undertaken the Trump campaign and super PAC work of how are we supposed to use any of this? All of this material is so offensive. Mm -hmm. We don't actually understand how to translate this. Mm -hmm. If you guys just showed us, you know, impact numbers, people that went to the polls, okay, great. But everything you've just shown us is kind of horrific. Mm -hmm. There's no way that anybody running a company Mm -hmm. is going to actually buy this. This this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So after spending quite a while being more than offended and trying to figure out what to do, I actually moved to Mexico. Mm -hmm. (laughs) At the time, I wasn't in a place to be able to quit my job, unfortunately. I wish I could have been. Um, And so I decided to go open a new office where I wouldn't have to work with Alexander Mm -hmm. or with anyone that had worked on the Trump campaign, and I could start my own business within their umbrella. So I actually still had financial support from them, mm-hmm. even though it was quite small, and just get away from all of that. And when did you leave? You stayed there for— No, oh, I, I, I left um, a couple days after that presentation. Right, for Mexico. But mm-hmm. you were still with the company. I was still with the company. Why not leave the company? Maybe I should have applied for other jobs then. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't financially stable. My dad had just had brain surgery. Mm-hmm. It wasn't— a thought that came to my mind. Did you understand the gravity of what the company had done? I suppose I did. But, well, I guess I suppose I didn't. I was shocked that Donald Trump had actually won because I was told the entire time that he wasn't ever going to win and that this was all a commercial exercise. Mm-hmm. So the God, idea Donald that— Trump is a commercial exercise? Yeah, that's actually how— the conversation started with mm-hmm. us and Donald Trump that he was going to run for president. And create a TV show. And that it would be a perfect opportunity for him to test his messaging and find his audience. Mm-hmm. So I just never thought that he was actually going to win, and it took a long time to kind of process that that had happened. So so you eventually left the company. I did, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was that like? 
that was a massive confrontation between mm-hmm. me and Alexander, actually. Mm-hmm. So I had spent a long time trying to get the company to make more ethical decisions. I'd gotten in a fight with him over my office registering to work in elections when he actually wanted to put it through a commercial company and Mm -hmm. hide the fact that we were doing political work. He wanted our data scientists to be the people making decisions about uh, data compliance instead of lawyers, Mm -hmm. um, et cetera, and so forth. And that built up to the point where... I finally told him to go fuck himself mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> in a meeting and left to never And that was come your back. last to never come yeah. back. And and by this time had he got gotten caught on tape making ridiculous bragging or anything no. like that. But they were still dining out on the Trump victory, essentially. Still dining out on the Trump victory for a long time. Yeah. And it continued to become more and more offensive given that I was living in Mexico. And working with my friends there Mm -hmm. and developing great relationships with companies and the government. And I was really excited about the work that I was doing. Which was commercial work. Mostly commercial, but some political as well for candidates that I believed in. Mm -hmm. And I believed that I was actually going to have an opportunity to use these tools for what they should be used for. All right. (laughs) So when the Cambridge Analytica thing broke, what did you think? They got caught having abused this platform. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when I first saw uh, the Facebook story break in the news, I thought, huh, I have an email where my chief data scientist promises Facebook that he deleted this data Mm -hmm. in January 2016. Right. So they still had it. Right. Huh. Hmm. I wonder what else... They still have. Went wrong if I'm to actually reflect upon everything that happened to me. So the chief data scientist promised Facebook. So Facebook is off the hook in that way. Do you think they are? No, because I don't think an email from a data scientist that is using this data for commercial purposes Mm -hmm. and political purposes, that an email saying, yes, we deleted everything, is a legitimate Interaction. I would agree. Over, over a data protection violation that vast. Yeah. Why was there no contract? Why was there no forensic analysis of mm-hmm. the database? Right. Why was there no temporary banning mm-hmm. of Cambridge on their actual you know, commercial relationship with Facebook? Mm-hmm. The email ends with the chief policy officer of Facebook mm-hmm. signing off basically thanking Dr. Alex Taylor, and signing her name Allie instead of Allison mm-hmm. as, you know, a show of friendly, uh, a show of friendliness to say, you know, oh, this is all cleared up. Yeah. So everything's no okay. No, no enforcement of their rules. Zero enforcement. Zero enforcement. And was that known within Cambridge Analytica? They're not going to do anything. We can just plunder this data as much as we want. No, because when this came up— um, in 2015, at first, the entire company froze and was terrified about breaking a Facebook's relationship laws. with Facebook. Right. And so the entire company was very well aware of we were meant to tread carefully, and apparently one of the data sets we had, we weren't supposed to have, so we were going to delete it. Mm-hmm. It was a very big deal mm-hmm. and so handled, what? as far as I knew, very sensitively and very seriously. Right. Right. But the enforcement by Facebook was lax. The enforcement by Facebook was non-existent. All right. When we get back, we're going to talk about that and what we need to do going into this next election. And what do you think the repercussions of this, uh, what happened at Cambridge Analytica and elsewhere, uh, are? We're here with Brittany Kaiser. Her book is called Targeted, the Cambridge Analytica Whistleblower's Inside Story of How Big Data, Trump, and Facebook Broke Democracy and How It Can Happen Again. We're here with Brittany Kaiser. She's the author of Targeted. It's a new book about the inside story of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. There's another one out by Chris Wiley, who was in the technical part of that. Uh, he was also a whistleblower. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. How do you look at that book? For You're coming out at the same time, but you're talking about similar issues from different viewpoints. Yeah, I mean, I think the more information that's out there, the better, as long as it's accurate. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the few pages that I've seen of, of his is not accurate. What's not accurate about it? <laughs> I've only seen the parts that he wrote about me because okay. people have sent me photos of them. So what is not accurate? I was told that it, it says in the book that I was director of operations of the Leave EU campaign for mm-hmm. Brexit, mm-hmm. even though we were uh, at the time an unpaid 
consultant. There was no official title or involvement whatsoever. Um, and there's quite a few things in there that say that I consulted to Julian Assange's legal team, mm-hmm. which never happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I did pro bono work for a human rights law firm that also represented him. But Well, he's, he's trying to say you were knee-deep in it, presumably. Yeah, right. exactly. So it's just unfortunately uh, a, a bit of misinformation in there, but— you know, he could have asked me, and I could have given him the accurate sure, information. Sure, but in terms of what he, what you both were doing, we're trying to unveil the same thing, which is abuse of data. Of course, and yeah. I totally support him in doing that, right. 100%. I actually, in fact, wish that more whistleblowers would come out of companies that have abused data so that we can write this wrong faster than we are right now. So you're saying Facebook is non-existent. They destroyed democracy, meaning not just not just with the American election, but that's had repercussions even today, right now. We're seeing mm-hmm. it in Syria and other places, but um, but also repercussions across the globe. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you imagine if Facebook had done nothing? What should they have been doing at this time? Understanding their power or what? Yeah, I mean, being a little bit more open about the fact that they were not prepared to make the changes that they needed to make to keep people Mm -hmm. safe. Mm -hmm. If you think about some of the basic things that they did wrong, okay, um, let's start with basic uh, know-your-customer anti-money laundering identification of individuals who are purchasing political advertising on Facebook. Mm -hmm. So. You have to be an American or an American registered organization with the FEC in order to buy political ads. Mm -hmm. Now, somehow, Facebook allowed people with a Russian credit card from a Russian bank to pay in rubles from Russia for political advertising. Now, that's something that inherently in the platform should not be allowed. That shouldn't be a loophole. Mm -hmm. There should... There's an easy technology fix for that. If you're a $500 billion company, that is a quick fix with for a very small budget. Who they're doing business with. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. That's 100%. one. 100%. The other is enforcement of data that's used by third parties, which they have sort of clamped down on. Well, by clamping down, they told everybody, you're not allowed to use our data anymore. Right. Have they actually gone to those 40,000 developers and, and to the millions of companies that that data was then sold on to and made them delete it? Mm-hmm. No. No. Not that I know of. I think we'd know right. if they were doing something like that. And kudos to them if they are. And right? and what else? What else? Um, well, it's so abuse really— Abuse of the system by foreign malcontents mm-hmm. and governments aiming at uh, messing up the system. Of course. And unfortunately, I've seen Mark Zuckerberg go on television and say that he doesn't have the ability to measure hate speech. Now, this is a huge problem considering— Hate speech and misinformation on his platforms caused a genocide in Myanmar besides violence and hatred around the world when it goes completely unchecked. Now, I have worked for very many organizations that have been using very basic data in order to measure hate speech. The International Criminal Court has interns doing it. Mm-hmm. The United Nations, many departments do it. Uh, big NGOs do it all the time. Amnesty International certainly helps do that. How is a company that is worth that much money uh, lacking in all abilities to measure hate speech when this is Mm -hmm. an easy investment into some data scientists and data engineers that can start solving this problem with psychologists and experts. It's not a huge investment to stop people from killing each other because they're using your platform. So what would be the reason for doing it? They say they're working on all these things. Of course, it's late. It's rather late in the game to have having done this. Secondly, they continue down roads of not taking things down, the Nancy Pelosi video and explaining or labeling things, the the recent uh, re-announcement of something they were already doing, which was allowing politicians to lie in ads, but then delete any links that are lies, which was sort of confusing on Very some confusing. level. How do you assess how they think of things now? I think that the direct, there's a direct contrast in trying to say that they are upholding free speech and being a publisher and being held liable for nothing, mm-hmm. absolutely nothing. Now, I, I've spoken to a lot of executives from big news organizations who are livid that one of the biggest 
publishing platforms in the world is not held liable for what they allow people to publish. Now we've heard all of Facebook's excuses for why they don't fall under these laws, but I don't really understand how how they themselves can continue to purport that when the amount of crimes and violence and death that has come out of that it has gone completely unchecked. You know, just if you hold your mouse over an image and you all of a sudden see a tag that it's a political ad or that video or image mm-hmm. has been manipulated, mm-hmm. is that enough to stop people from believing in its content mm-hmm. and seeing it anyway? Right. Uh, and there are these essential questions. You know, I'm not someone that, that is going to claim that censorship is 100% the right answer, but Mm -hmm. there has to be some better policing and management of content because you can be sure if the New York Times or the Washington Mm -hmm. Post published even a small percentage of what goes through Facebook, the entire executive board would be in jail. Right. So why doesn't that happen from what you're—you worked with them. What, What was your impression of Facebook people when you worked with them? Well, I actually didn't have that much individual Mm -hmm. interaction with Facebook. Sometimes they would visit the office in order to show my digital buying team in order to to sell new tools to them, show them how to use the new stuff that they had. But in general, I didn't have a day-to-day interaction with Facebook. Some of my friends have in the past. Some of the people that I worked with had their direct relationships with Facebook, Mm -hmm. and it was very much a buyer-seller Right. relationship. You yeah. know, if we were willing to buy something from them, they were willing to do anything to let us do that. All right. And so what should happen then? Now, here you are, a company that's unchecked by any regulatory agency, although they're trying in Europe, they're trying all, and you've testified in front of those things. What do you imagine is going to happen and what has to happen for it not to happen next as you talk about it, how it can happen again? Explain how it can happen again and then what needs to be done about it. It can happen again for quite a few reasons. Uh, One, I would say that this election is going to be even more contentious than the last one. Someone that's trying to stay in power from all of my former work and research about what goes on in politics around the world, someone trying to stay in power wields as much use of tools as they possibly can. especially with the walls. They pull up all the— Yeah, they pull out all the stops. And so any of the tools and the hatred— and the violence that came out of the last election is sure to be exponentially worse this time because there aren't there aren't really any tools to stop that from happening. And so where I really hope that regulators and legislators are going to concentrate are on solving multiple problems at once. It's not going to be one law. You know, it's not it's not just monopoly legislation that's going to help. It's not just data protection legislation. It's not just you know, further definitions and policing of hate speech and voter suppression. Mm-hmm. It's going to have to be all of those. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the good and the bad thing about cutting-edge technology is that it moves a lot faster than the law does. That's a good thing when technology is doing things sure. that better humanity. It's a really bad thing when it goes completely unchecked for so many years that now there are all these problems that we never foresaw. And I'm not going to say that all of this is Facebook's fault. A lot of these were problems that nobody predicted could have possibly Mm -hmm. happened. But the fact is we have identified a lot of problems right now. And if the proper investment is not happening via Facebook to actually solve these problems and we're not seeing the results of that, then unfortunately I think we've given them quite a lot of time to prove that they're making a difference. And they haven't proved anything to me. They certainly haven't proven anything to other people I know that have left Facebook I don't know if you ever have spoken to Yael Eisenstadt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So after her six months of head of elections integrity, she was told no, no, and no to everything she suggested as a cybersecurity and intelligence expert on how to protect people ahead of elections. So if they're going to say no and not invest in the changes that we need to see, then unfortunately they need to be legislated and regulated. So what would you do? I hear you have Elizabeth Warren. I mean, while Mark is having dinner with, I don't know, Tucker Carlson, it's a joke, but he was. Mm -hmm. Um, He's snarking about Elizabeth Warren in meetings, not having meetings with her. He did put a post out, so it was a little self-aggrandizing and self-righteous. So I meet with lots of people. It's important to talk to people. I was like, listen, Ellen of social media, you didn't have dinner with Elizabeth Warren as far as I can tell or that I know about. No, because she's an existential threat. Yes, exactly. So what, what, what should be the legislation then from your perspective? So there's a number of things. Uh, number one in terms of my viewpoint is the way that they handle data. 
right now there is no transparency into what you're actually agreeing to by using Facebook, all of the different places they're collecting data from you, how they're using it, and if there is any way for people to have knowledge into that. So the transparency and consent mechanisms need to change completely. Next would be the policing of of what is actually published on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be a lot of people who love the right to free speech that are going to be terrified at some of the things I'm going to say. But uh, I'm sorry, incitement of racial hatred and violence is not okay. And we need to find a way to make sure that language and content that is insightful of that doesn't have a place on Facebook and doesn't have a place anywhere where you can pay to put that in front of people. We need to find ways to do that. It's not just going to be a law. It's going to be a technology solution, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Uh, But with that amount of money and that amount of data scientists and engineers, it should be easier for Facebook to fix. I just don't have any proof that they're trying to fix it. And then there needs to be relationships between our actual laws, not, not just data protection laws, but electoral laws, and what is allowed in the Facebook platform. As I said, you shouldn't be able to log in from another country and purchase in another currency political ads in America when it's mm-hmm. illegal for you to do so. Right. There should be checks and the balances. The will, FEC will never catch it. We'll never catch all of it, really. That's I mean, problem. right now, they don't even have enough people to have a quorum. That's another issue. So do you, what do you think the chances of this happening? Well, there's quite a lot of good legislation that's currently sitting waiting to be considered. Actually, my favorite that I didn't talk about yet is Elizabeth Warren's law, uh, the Corporate Executive Accountability Act, Mm -hmm. which means that instead of civil fines, if a company through negligence allows a massive data leak or to be hacked, then that will be a criminal penalty. So people like Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg would be in jail by now. Mm -hmm. And I think... That is so incredibly important because executives from big tech are so completely removed from the consequences of how people use their platforms or how people abuse their platforms. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that you can get away with a small fine as opposed to actually having criminal liability, I think will change the incentive structure quite a lot for people to take data protection very seriously. And it's not saying if you just happen to get hacked, you should go to jail. No, Mm -hmm. it's saying through negligence, like with Equifax and Facebook, Equifax had over 300 security certificates expire before they were hacked. They didn't implement over 8,500 updates to their software systems. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. It's negligence. You know, it's complete negligence. It's through negligence, then you would receive criminal liabilities. So did you ever think about working for Elizabeth Warren? I mean, I'd... Love to sit down with her, of course. She's amazing. Do you think you lost your way? That movie really showed you sort of wandering around in suitcases, rolling through airports. Yeah. Felt a lot like that. Yeah. Oddly in a Thai pool. I don't know why you were doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got I got distracted yeah. and let the wrong priorities take over my decision-making, unfortunately. But it's never too late to do the right thing. What do you do now? What do you do now for... So I run two different nonprofits. Uh, one of them is completely new. It's the Own Your Data Foundation. I see you're wearing a necklace that says that. Yes. <laughs> so we work on digital literacy training. Uh, we're starting first in schools. So we're teaching uh, teachers and parents how to implement digital literacy education for kids. So mm-hmm. that's everything from understanding your data rights to how to behave with empathy online, uh, how to know how to protect yourself, uh, basic cybersecurity protocols, which I think should really be part of every computer lesson that kids go through. You shouldn't know how to type without Mm -hmm. understanding what typing words into a software program means. Mm -hmm. So that's one side. And then I also co-founded a year and a half ago the Digital Asset Trade Association, DATA. We are a 501c6, so a lobbying nonprofit, and we help legislators connect with technologists so that they can create common sense legislation in, in technology. How much do you think there's going to be common sense regulation? Well, I think right now a lot of the laws have come from a need that has been shown, and I think it's very important for technologists 
and very important for ethical technologists to be in direct conversation with Congress because we're at a very sensitive time right now where if technology is over-legislated and over-regulated, then we're going to stifle innovation and just send companies to other countries. And that's not what we want to do. What we want to do is find a balance of being able to protect people and also protect entrepreneurship because data and technology can solve a lot of the world's problems. And that's how I got into this mess in the first place, by hoping that that's all it could do. All right. Do you think Facebook is ethical? Right now, no. Can it be? Yes, it definitely can be. I mean, I'm still on Facebook. I don't want Facebook to cease to exist. I just want them to stop abusing people. I understand why it was first created, and you know, connecting people should inherently be good. It's still possible for that to happen, but really serious steps need to be taken. And I think we've given them more than enough time to make those decisions, and I haven't seen it yet. All right, Brittany, that's great. Thank you so much. Uh, Good luck with your book. It is called Targeted, Cambridge Analytical Whistleblower's Inside Story of How Big Data Trump and Facebook Broke Democracy and How It Can Happen Again. Let's hope it does not, but we have to do something about it, not just hope. Agreed. Anyway, thank you for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Brittany, where can people find you online in these organizations? <laughs> right. So um, if you go to LinkedIn.com uh, slash OwnYourData mm-hmm. and Facebook.com slash OwnYourData, also um, OwnYourData.Foundation. Okay. And you're getting funding from various tech groups. What? Yep. Um, we, most of my work has been pro bono. Actually, nearly all of it has been pro bono. So we just founded this foundation so that hopefully we can work with tech companies who want to be a part of solving these problems. Okay. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our new podcast, Reset. Just search for it in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then. <laughs>